0: Don't talk, just listen. that a regular hand was a well-worshipped, mightily feared one. They walked freely among the mortals, spreading miracles and disasters wherever they saw fit. They took lovers, and we do mean took, and sired both the heroes of the age and the monsters in whose blood the tales of those heroes were written. Each new world discovered was sanctified in sacrifice and ritual, and each new people brought along their own gods, and these wars remade the world. Times changed, and gods changed with them. The current policy was one of benign neglect. The mortals were encouraged to find their own solutions, and to maybe, perhaps, find their own causality within this chaos. There were still miracles and still disasters but what they meant was up to whosoever took the time to look the gods of the city being the black sun were new gods and did not yet know what their own policy should be they met at midnight in the sands of the desert that surrounded the city sands so black it would seem to any observer of which there were none that the new gods tread upon the very night itself, streams that it fell and tumbled at their step. The gods did not technically need to walk anywhere, but there was pleasure in the motion. In the case of Mister. Oakes, it was largely a matter of habit. He'd believed in human for a long time before discovering he was something else entirely, something made of equal parts faith and despair and animated by something akin to magic. Even now, even aware as he was of the unreality from which he had sprung, his beard still felt like hair, and his flesh still felt substantial. There was still a thrill whenever he broke from the bindings of mortal form, like slipping through walls, or leaving the ground, or breaking apart into abstract thought and being everywhere, nowhere, all at once. When Mr. Oaks arrived at the appointed place, the hawk was waiting. With the whisper of the wind, a previously empty space was occupied by the witch woman and her dark counterpart, bound to her by a silver chain. A moment more, and the wind blew even stronger, strong enough to seem a physical presence. And, yes, a shape was emerging from the motion, darkening and deepening until a cloak, crimson as fresh spilled blood, stood open in the air. The wraith clawed its way free of its own cowl. The wraith eyed the group, its hunger plain. Death gods are always hungry, and this one had been a long time between meals. In the early days of the city, the wraith had busied itself, setting many a trap. A spider with webs laced around every corner. But the population had thinned, and those remaining had learned caution. Death gods will feed on just about anything, even other gods. We are absent too, the wraith croaked. The one is lost in shadow, and still does not know their nature, the witch woman said. And the other comes now, said the other woman. His footsteps announced him long before he appeared. Old King Croc did not care for the desert, for dryness and sand. His displeasure could be heard in every booming stomp upon the ground, sand grains trembling at his nearing. But at last he took his place among the circle. Mr. Oaks cleared his throat, a habit he would never fully break. We all know why we are here, he began. We all know what's coming next. The wraith licked its lips. Death! He moaned. So much death! Dr. Andrews awoke from her strange dream. It was funny, she thought, that after so many years beneath the black sun, anything could still qualify as strange to her. She tried to conjure back the faces and figures of the dark shapes standing in a circle in the midnight desert. Their words had been hushed, yet the very air had vibrated with each intonation. But what had they said? A commotion further down the sewer pipe dragged her the rest of the way into wakefulness. When living in war, it didn't do to ignore commotions. The communities that formed the outliers fighting in opposition to the Man McRae's invasive forces have been bracing themselves for a retaliatory blow after their ambush left a number of the Man McRae's fighting forces, comprised largely of teenagers and young adults, shredded on the city streets. The people of the outliers huddled in the sewers, on the rooftops, and in those corners of the city still standing after the kaiju's rampage. People had even taken to living within the kaiju now that its meat had been either rotten off or been picked away by the birds and the beasts and the hungry humans. They had been disparate peoples during all their years beneath the black sun until united together as victims of a punishing force that saw them all as nothing but so much vermin. And now, united in fear for the attack that everyone knew was coming, a pall hung over the city, everyone moving with a permanent flinch. It was so pronounced, so ceaseless, that some, including to her shame Dr. Andrews, began to almost long for some kind of blow up some cathartic release of blood and rage and stress that would at last let them out of this awful hold of not knowing as she pushed through the crowd to see what was the matter Dr. Andrews felt that shame burn even hotter inside of her someone had to be hurt maybe someone was dead in her mind she began to run down the faces of all those she knew and loved remembering last things said parting gestures that now would be made permanent and irreplaceable. She felt grateful for every body she bounced off of, every familiar visage that was someone who was still there, still whole and breathing and scared and worried and alive. Nothing you can do, doc? She heard someone call. Nothing for you to do. Dr. Andrews pushed on anyway. She wasn't meant for this, but she would do it all the same. Following the crowd brought her to the chamber that served as an unofficial school and play area for the children. She found herself next to Everett McHugh, the stocky ball guy who entertained the children and who had thus been pressed into serving as teacher and daycare attendant. He was watching a scrum of parents, children pressed close to their legs, arguing with the men and women posted on guard duty, arguing with Cassandra and the other members of the unofficial council, arguing with each other, arguing for the sheer pleasure of their own voices raised two parents not arguing without a child pressed to their legs, Dr. Andrews recognized as being Carver and Liz. Their daughter, Annika, had been a patient of hers back when she'd been a doctor with the hospital. Their daughter, Annika, was nowhere to be seen. Dr. Andrews felt her stomach condense into a stone and begin to sink. What happened? She asked Everett McHugh. That little girl Annika is gone, he replied. Gone as in. The ellipsis spelled out what Dr. Andrews couldn't bring herself to speak. No, I mean she's gone, gone, Everett McHugh said. No one came in or out of this chamber all last night. There's guards posted to keep people out, and wards paying to keep out all the other things you have to worry about in this fucking city. Nobody saw anything, nobody heard anything. She's... just... The ellipsis spelled out what Everett McHugh could not bring himself to repeat. The stone sank even deeper. You could fight back against an oppressive force. You could rally against a monster. But how are you supposed to defeat an absence? There could be no catharsis. There could be no raging grief or rampaging fury. There was only the shape of the girl who should be there, but was not. Only the absence. Of all the terrible moments she had lived through, of all the terrible things she had seen, Dr. Andrews thought that this might just be the worst thing that could possibly happen. She was wrong because even worse was the next day, when two girls, Vicky and Maisie, disappeared from the same chamber in the same manner. The girls' caretakers, Sanjit and his wife, Bajoya, wept all through the day, while the girls' dog, Lala, howled her own unhappiness until the sewers rattled. And even worse was the day after that, when another three children disappeared and four the day after that. Word went out to the other outlier communities and word came back that the same plague was befalling families all over the city. Nobody saw anything. Nobody heard anything. Parents tied their children to them, kept awake all hours of the day and night, isolated themselves from anyone who might be a threat, which was everyone but there was nothing for it, nothing to be done, nothing left, only this absence. And so it went on, each night more and more children disappearing from their beds from underneath their parents' watch. Terror, such a common flavor in the city beneath the black sun, took on an even harsher tone. When people bumped into each other, they were instantly at one another's throats with knife blades flashing. Some parents stayed up all day and all night, weeping for what had been lost or for what they stood still to lose. Some wrapped themselves in thick layers of denial, insisting despite all evidence to the contrary, that surely their own young would be spared, surely they had done nothing to merit such a loss. The popular theory remained that this was the work of the man McRae as retaliation for the ambush. No one could suss out how exactly he was doing it, But the people of the outliers had bestowed upon him a degree of power and ominous presence previously held only by the likes of Lucifer and his predecessors in humanity annihilating evil. There was nothing that the man McRae could not do, no feat too impossible, and no monstrous act too unconscionable. Some parents went so far as to prostrate themselves before the gates of his keep at the center of the city. They would kneel, hands and foreheads on the pavement, and raise up their wail, apparently not minding how the air filled with rifle cracks and the pavement around them shattered into gray flakes. Trading between two factions was meant to be illegal, but of course it still happened. During these now even more tense handoffs, the residents of the keep swore up and down that whatever was happening, it was not their side's doing. Something is definitely being planned, they would caution. That crazy lady, Betsy Overby, she's been holed up with that creep kid who makes all the weapons, but no one knows what they're cooking up. My hand to God, it's nothing to do with stealing kids away. The other popular theory was that this was all divine punishment for one reason or another. The ambush, perhaps? Maybe the old gods had decided to take up the Mammoth Ray's side, Or perhaps it was the new gods, feeling slighted by the way worship had been ignored and attention diverted by the onset of the Civil War. Perhaps it was a means for gods, old and new, to remind the mortals who was really in charge and what really counted for power in the world of the Black Sun. Parents humbled themselves before monuments to the hawk, to the croc, to the red wraith who dwelt in the red world of death and to the witch queens who lurked in the forests of dreams and nightmares. The gods stayed silent, as they tend to. At the extremes of panic, some parents went even farther still. They could not accept their children, raised by the black sun, forged and shaped by the life below, children who had been the sole source of warmth and love and hope through all the miserable years of monsters and madness, that they now too would be swallowed whole by another of the city's mysteries. So razors were brought to innocent flesh, poisons were mixed into sweet drinks, and when the deed was done, the parents took up the razor or the cup and hurried along after into the dark. It was with news and knowledge of this that the woman Cassandra finally broke. She had been holding it together as best she could for as long as she could. For a while, it was enough to roam the city with her red hood and her sickle blade, righting wrongs protecting as many people as she could. As long as she did this kind of good, she felt free of him, the man McRae, her father. But when it became clear that he would never let her go, never truly, she had taken up the mantle of freedom fighter and rebel leader she did not care for this role especially well hell half the reason why she wore such an imposing outfit was to discourage conversation the other half being that she looked cool as hell but it was a necessary role to play if not only the outliers were going to survive but she herself the world had never wanted to cohere to her knowledge of her own identity not when it came to her gender her name the very things that defined who cassandra knew herself to be even if everyone and everything else told her otherwise. So she held onto her inner self twice as hard and forged stronger and stronger masks to show the world. Only now, the mask broke. Exhausted and defeated, the Cassandra put her face into her hands and wept. She did not need to look up when the warm body pressed against her own, she knew Priya Patel's touch as well as she knew her own hands, her own skin. And she knew Priya better than the other woman knew herself. They had traced secret maps over one another, marking out territories that were theirs and theirs alone. Lonely expanses of skin now invaded and claimed. I fucked this all up. Cassandra breathed through her tears. I've destroyed Everything. No, Pripatel assured her, no, no, no. Yes, I have, Cassandra said. That stupid ambush, this whole fucking war. I thought... I thought I knew that there would be costs. But I thought we had to pay it in order for all of us to be safe. But these children... These are children. And it's my fault. You don't know that, pre Patel said. Look, if I've told you once, I've told you a hundred times. This is a fucked up place. The world we came from, pretty fucked up too. Things happen, Cassandra. Things you can't believe or explain or do anything about. There's plenty of bad out there that is your fault, that you can do something about without you adding on every other pain you can find. And how is this not my fault, Cassandra snapped. How could it be, Privatel replied. Cass, no one knows why these kids are disappearing. I don't think anyone can answer that. Begging your pardon, my dears, Mr. Oak said, stepping into being as he said the words. But I believe I can. Priya and Cassandra stared at him, then at each other, then back to the red-bearded man with his hands shyly in his pockets. It had been years since they had seen him, since before they had become lovers. How are you... Why are you... What? Priya couldn't find the question. Cassandra could. Where the fuck have you been, and what are you doing here? Mr. Oaks chuckled. I have missed you both a great deal, he said. In answer to your first question, um, you could say that I have been on a journey of self-discovery slash engaging in a long-term research project into the nature of the divinity within the world of the Black Sun. Cassandra frowned you've been studying gods?" Priya Patel gaped. You are a god. Emphasis on the lowercase g, Mr. Oaks replied. In form, I am closest to what you might call a ghost, but I'm the ghost of a man who never existed. My, My poor friend Mr. Mayhew imagined me into being, and when he came to this land that belief took root, and I became... Well, I became Mr. Mayhew, Cassandra said, weighing the name. God, there's been so much going on. I haven't even thought of him for the longest time. The last we saw him, he was going back into the dark dimension to try and rescue Terry and that security guy. What was it? Mustafa? What happened to him? He died, Mr. Oak said, harsher than he'd intended. The room around him soured. At their expressions of shock and worry, he softened. He died pulling those two out. I was able to reach into the dark enough to learn that, but now he's lost lost that realm, and we cannot reach either Mustafa or Terry. We would have to be led in by the creatures that hold dominion there, and they are not the inviting kind. I'm afraid both young Master Terry and that good man may very well be dead by now too. If possible, Cassandra somehow felt even worse. Mr. Mayhew, Mustafa, Terry. All gone because they had played roles in rescuing her from her father. God, would this never fucking end? Why are you here? She said. It could have been an angry question, but she was too exhausted for anger anymore. Are you just looking to show off the new godly powers or what? Mr. Oaks grappled with the insides of his pockets. I have come here, he began, slowly, to explain about the children as best I can. Cassandra began to repeat, only for Priya to burst in. It's been you, she cried. You and the others, the gods, that have been making up all this time. You've been stealing the kids. Mr. Oaks hung his head. Yes. Cassandra's numbness gave way to nausea. She tried to ask why, but she didn't have the oxygen. Instead, she sank to a seat. Priya planted a hand on her shoulder, as if trying to kindle back the warrior woman's spirit by passing on her own fury. Why? Priya demanded. Did we offend you in some way? It's nothing like that, Mr. Oak protested. Then what is it? It's kindness. The women gaped. What does that mean? Patel asked. What the fuck does that mean? Cassandra said. Mr. Oaks sighed deeply. This is the best we could do, he said. The most we could do. To save them. From what? Cassandra asked. But her cold heart knew the answer. Death, Mr. Oaks replied, his sorrow plain. I am so sorry, but there is death coming and there is nothing you can do. So much death, the Wraith had said, in the midnight desert during the deepest part of the night. The peace of Mr. Oaks that was still mortal, that would be mortal always, that still knew what it meant to be mortal, writhed with discomfort to be so near the Wraith. The question, he had pushed on, the question now becomes... How might we intercede? We can't, croaked the witch woman. We won't, howled the wraith. They are due to me, and to me they will come. Shut up, said the witch woman's cruel counterpart. He is right, though, she said to the rest of the gathering. These miserable wretches are bought and paid for, only not to him dark one whose eye is the black sun he who captured the city and brought it to this world he who sits above us all and plays a game far beyond our ken to play while the used tampon here looks up his scraps the counterpart jabbed her chin in the direction of the wraith it hissed at her with dry and cracking lips but said nothing more. The witch woman went on. All things have moved by the Dark One's plan. Perhaps there was a time when the humans possessed the numbers and strength that could have overthrown him had they unified. But those days are past. They are scattered and far too busy destroying each other to pay attention to what is going on behind their world. If he has decided it is time to reap his harvest, then that is what shall be. But aren't we standing here, proof there is power beyond what he might will, Mr. Oaks demanded, or do you think this great dark god of yours is happy to have the likes of us running around and gumming up the works? We've saved people, all of us. This one, here he pointed to the wraith, Help create what might be the city's best weapon. We've broken the rules and written our own. Why can't we do that again? Because back then, we were merely dueling in the margins, the witch woman said. This is Endgame. This is the sort of fate that centuries are spent crafting. It gives me no pleasure to tell you these things, boy. I am as fond of the mortals as you, and I've been among them longer. So it counts for more. Not that anyone is counting, but if they were, I'd be winning. It fills me with sorrow to know that this story must now come to a bitter end, but that sorrow cannot rewrite the knowledge. This is what is. This is what must be. They stood in silence then, each one of them counting the souls of all who had come before and all who would be lost, all that had been suffered and survived, all now damned to be washed away on the lonesome desert winds, as if it had never happened, as if it had never mattered. I do not accept what is, Mr. Oak said. I do not accept what must be." The witch woman's cruel sister laughed. How very human of you. There was a sound like gathering thunder, though the sky was still clear. Belatedly, they realized it was the king gathering himself up to speak. Might yet be something, old King Croc rasped could make them ours, not his. Make them Mr. Oaks began, but then he understood. A few years into life beneath the Black Sun, the sewer tribe formed beneath the streets. They told the story of old King Croc and gave him life and shape. Ever since, their own lives and shapes began to twist to better reflect their master. Their skin took on a greenish cast. Their eyes swelled and paled. Fingertips began to end in claws. And there were other stories, stories of those that had gone even farther. The abandoned and terrorized children, the old King Croc had adopted as his own, and remade into creatures not quite animal, but certainly not human. I have room for many more, he hissed. The witch woman was stroking her chin. The forests of the mind in which we dwell are quite large, she said, wondering aloud. Lots of room for creatures to run and roam. They would need to be creatures, though. In the sand, The hawk was bobbing up and down. The hawk had always been a symbol of hope, of guardianship. He would be all too happy to accept children. Because that is what we are discussing, Mr. Oaks realized. For those adults still alive, the die has been cast. Blood is on their hands and in their souls. Their fates are written, their choices made. And all that is left is to play out the news that they have tied. But the children of the city were still malleable enough to both accept a new life and these lives be very, very new, and to have an actual chance at making them work. It was madness, a madness great enough to curl his stomach, or what he still thought of as his stomach. Yet, what about the world being the Black Sun wasn't insane. And when the choice was madness or annihilation, was it not better to accept the crazy choice and play it through? Fine, Mr. Oak said. Let us save the children then. Now, howled the wraith. Children taste the best of all. You will not deny me my meal. Idiot, the witch woman's dark half sneered. If everyone dies during the attack, then that's it for you you'll feed on whatever scraps you can and then the city fades out and you with it the dark one will just find another morsel to move on to or go into hibernation like before but you'll be stuck here starving just as we will without subjects to worship and love and hate us but if life goes on the wraith stared at her uncomprehending At last, it clicked. If life goes on, it said, then so will death. Precisely. Her teeth, when she grinned, were yellow and fanged. The wraith cackled with its awful, dry voice. Then by all means, it said, let us proceed. By the time Mr. Oaks finished his telling, both Priya and Cassandra sat slumped. It took a while after he finished speaking for them to catch up to the fact that he had done so. You... You've turned the children into monsters, Cassandra said. Mr. Oaks rubbed his eyes. They are not monsters are not monsters, not humans, not animals, not gods. They're a kind of combination. So Croc has all his little gators, Priya said. And the hawk has all his hatchlings. Cassandra picked up the string. And the witch and her sister have them running through the forest as who the fuck knows what. I wish to stress, Mr. Oaks cut in, that their minds and personalities have not been affected in any way. Every child is still very much him and her self. Put into the body of a fucking monster they are not. Once more, the room shuddered around Mr. Oaks' wrath and once more, he bawled it back down. The choice was between annihilation or change and we have elected for change there's no choice in this there's no choice in this Cassandra argued you're treating us like pieces in your fucking game Mr. Oaks shook his head there was a choice young lady many choices in fact you just didn't realize the import as you were making them We, and I include myself in this, we chose fear over fellowship. We chose division over community. We let these tiny fractures grow and grow until now the city is built on top of fault lines that are finally beginning to cave. We paid into this debt, each of us, every day. And now, at last, it is due. And the gods cannot change that no matter what we wish. We can save who we can, however we can. So we die, Priya Patel said, soft. We die soon, but the kids live on. As fucking freaks, Cassandra cried, as children of the black sun, said Priya Patel, which... They always were, anyway. Cassandra stared at her. Priya, what are you saying? I am saying... The one-time cab driver weighed her words. I'm saying not everything was intended, but maybe some things are meant. Maybe this was always how this phase of the city ended. Clearly. The ways we've been trying haven't been working. We tried to bring back the old world and that fell apart. Now, both us and the we're trying to assert dominance over the world we got and all we've accomplished is killing and maiming each other. But the kids, for these kids, this is the only world they've ever known or the only one they'll really remember. Maybe it's time that this world belonged to them. And they, to it, Priya Patel wasn't sure where in that speech she had begun to cry. But the tears poured fast and free. They fell from Cassandra's face as well. So where does that leave us? She said. Priya embraced her. In the dark, she said. Alone, together. Where we've always been. Mr. Oaks hung his head. The tears felt real against his beard. I'm sorry, he said. I'm so sorry. I wish there was more that we could do. There isn't. All I can say is... is Enjoy this time that you have left. Maybe you'll survive. I don't mean to give you false hope, but... You've all surprised us so many times before. He tried to smile, but it felt false and cruel. I'm sorry, he said again. I don't know what else to say. You don't have to say anything, Cassandra replied. She wiped her face, and when she met his gaze, her eyes sparkled with the old, defiant light gods have done their part, now all that's left is the dying, and that belongs to us. Look after the little ones, and I guess we'll see you." Not trusting himself to say anything more, Mr. Oaks turned and walked back into the immaterial, and it was there he sensed the pain from across dimensions, a pain that signify that the boy Terry had breached some kind of dimensional wall, Mr. Oaks will fly to that dark land where the boy wrestles with gods and demons, where souls are bartered and fates are flayed. But that is the stuff of gods, etc., and we will not bother with it yet. For now, there is only Cassandra and Priya, alone, together there is nothing left to them but the dying, but that is a different story yet. For now they live and love, for now they curl against one another and draw courage from the knowledge that the other fears as well. It is not enough to stop what is coming, to halt what is being prepared with the mammoth rays keep. But if they cannot stop it, at least they can face it. Face it, not unafraid, that would be a lie but face it all the same it's not much but it's what mortals have gods get to decide when they dip in and out of life but humans don't have much say they live until they don't and must face each thing as it comes so they will face this because they have to because there is finally absolutely no way out because they have each other And sometimes, only sometimes, all you need to face the dark is someone to hold your hand and sharing it with you.